cast of our heads. And dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much once again for this tremendous privilege, this opportunity to gather together as family in the unity of the faith, Father. Thank you so much for always being faithful to us. Thank you for giving us so much. Thank you for revealing your grace and your love and your mercy to us in time. And also thank you, Father, for giving us the opportunity to spread such things to others so that we might shine as lights on a hill in our own small way to your glory. Father, we pray for those that can't be with us here due to illness. And we pray also those that are spiritually dead still that before it's too late that you humble them, whatever that takes, and that uh, in advance we're grateful for any opportunity we might have to evangelize them. What a privilege that is, Father. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for the source of the gospel, your Son, Jesus Christ, who canceled out that debt. We just ask for blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. <clears throat> Again, this evening's message title is what is good and who gets to define it. <clears throat> Before we get to that point on the board, let's do a quick review of our lesson from Tuesday, part two of It's Time to Man Up. Uh, as is often the case after a couple of tough lessons, the Spirit closed out the mini-series with an emphasis on love up here on the board. This, oops, this came out on Tuesday, God's love. Being called out by God isn't the same thing as being, quote, called out for the sake of embarrassment. Uh, there's that whole macho bull that uh, men seem to be uh, susceptible to. You know, this whole idea of self-respect, whatever that means. I think we learn it from the television from professional athletes who have no idea about what true respect even looks like. All they are protecting is their own image, their own idol, uh, with all their idolaters out there cheering them on. We're not talking about any of that. This isn't about street cred or respect or any of that garbage that we see on television. So being called out by God isn't the same thing as being called out for the sake of embarrassment as in the world. When God's Spirit says it's time to man up like He did this past week, you know what? It's a privilege to hear it. When the Lord God stops uh, a set of lessons and says, hold up for a moment, um, man up. It's a privilege to hear such things. And as, uh, as always the case, perspective is key. And I was thinking about this, you know, as a shepherd here, why does, why does the good Lord do such things? And one of the reasons, one of the main reasons, as we know from Holy Scripture, is that when God calls us out, <clears throat> He's proffering up His own grace. If He says it's time to man up, remember God always precedes a to-do list with grace. He's proffering up His own grace. He's offering up grace, putting it on the line for all creatures to see, including the angels. That's really what He's saying. So he's calling us out. He's drawing us out on faith. 
which is a gift given by grace. So if you think big picture, that's what this is all about. For example, Job reveals how very powerful the gospel of Christ is. Now you might have never thought about that before. Job reveals how very powerful the gospel of Christ is. If you, if you haven't figured it out yet, although we left, uh, I forget how many parts it was, I want to say it was a, over 100 parts on the gospel proper, the reload lessons. We haven't left the gospel behind. It's been right with us the entire time. We're sort of navigating further down the pike, if you would, with other doctrines and other things that are more practical, so to speak, to our lives. But the gospel is always the centerpiece, and as far as I can see, it will always be in this ministry. And so, believe it or not, Job reveals how very powerful the gospel of Christ is. For even though the gospel isn't the apparent theme of the book of Job, it is absolutely the substance of it. What do you think, for a moment, think about this, what do you think was Job's blessed motivation throughout all of his trials? Did he have a living hope to cling to? We must remember that Job is the one who said, I know that my Redeemer lives. Right smack dab in the middle of all that, with all his so-called buddies, you know, tooling on him and making matters worse. He said, I know that my Redeemer lives. So do you want to know, do you want to see what living the gospel reality looks like? Go to Job 19.25. Job 19.25. See, most people immediately and sometimes only think about suffering when they think of Job, and that's certainly appropriate. But this evening, take that one step further. Why was he so willing and able to suffer? The gospel. That's the great example. Job lived in that gospel reality, the same one that we live in right now. Job 19.25, he says, As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, he will take his stand on the earth. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God, whom I myself shall behold, and whom my eyes will see, and not another. My heart faints within me. How about that? How about that for living the gospel reality? How about that for hope? Did you realize that that's what the book of Job was about? It's about the gospel, my friends, as is every book in the Bible. If you haven't figured it out yet, every book in the Bible is about the gospel. <laughs> and when you get that, you know, when we get that through our thick heads, when we stop trying to slice and dice it up or try to build doctrine on doctrine, all this other stuff, what we realize how simple living this life really is. Simplicity and purity and devotion to Christ. Job had a Christ. He didn't know his name was Jesus like we do, but he certainly had the same Messiah. He just looked forward. He said, I know my Redeemer lives. He's going to save me. That's my Savior. It's my Lord. That's the Gospel. <laughs> so this is why he listened to the Lord God when he said, gird your loins, 
We got it as it's time to man up. That's just a colloquialism, right? It's just a modern day contemporary way that the Spirit chose to teach this particular congregation because we're, you know, so gangsta up in here. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Anybody for a flat brim? No? He said to Job, gird your loins. Why did Job stand there and stand fast? The gospel. Paul said, if you don't have that, we're most to be pitied. <laughs> it's everything. Ask yourself, what is a righteous man supposed to say to the one who has saved his life? So manning up from God's perspective, when God says man up, it is implied that we are to do so as unto the Lord on the fundamental reality of the gospel. The one who saved us is the same one who's saying man up. The one who saved us is the same one who says, I'm going to give you grace and faith so that you can man up. I'm going to draw you out so that the theatron, even the angels can see this wonderful display of my mercy, my grace, and my love through you, a vessel. When you read the so-called Hall of Fame of Faith in Hebrews 11, what you are seeing is a list of people who live the gospel reality. What do you think was their motivation? And as that chapter describes, each person who did so affected so many others along the way. So this idea of manning up isn't just about an individual. If you think that, I mean, that's where it starts, but if you think that's the only reason that he draws us out, uh, you've missed one of the key points. <clears throat> There are real consequences to not following your convictions. This came out on Tuesday as well. God is never mocked, Galatians 6, 7. There's always a ripple effect. There's always a wake behind you. And when you man up and people take notice, they may even throw stones at you. They may literally or figuratively spit on you and uh, despise you and deride you and all these kinds of things. So, good. Let the, let the pot be stirred. Somebody's going to do it. Somebody's going to wake up this ridiculousness all around us. So it's not a bad thing. It can be a bad thing, but it doesn't have to be a bad thing. But there are always consequences. And not following them, obviously, has negative consequences. And God is never mocked up here in the board. 6, verse 7 Galatia, of Galatians, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For better or for worse. I was just having that conversation with someone uh, today. Um, we, we're just so trained. Maybe because we're constantly testing the waters. Or, or testing the boundaries of God's patience. But by grace, we also do a lot of good. And these same principles apply in both directions. It's not always negative. 
If you sow bountifully, you reap bountifully. So says Scripture. The importance of following your own convictions cannot be overstated. Up here in Romans 14.22, the faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. It's really important. It's been a primary theme from this pulpit for years now. Have your own convictions. I'd rather you disagree with me on something, but have your own convictions. Not because they feel right, but because you've done your own homework here and we just seem to have arrived at a different place maybe. I can live with that because at least you're exercising integrity to what God has given you as what we can call your life, your understanding, your own spiritual walk. None of us have it perfect. So have your own convictions. God expects you. This is the key. This is one of the things that Um, has been sprinkled in our lessons for a very long time now. God expects you to follow whatever convictions you hold fast to. Now, if they're void of Scripture and you're just clinging to something that you want to be true or someone's opinion that you want to be true, it's a Chinese whisper situation, well, I really trust that person so it must be true. Uh -uh. That's not what God's talking about. Those are borrowed convictions. Have your own. The only way you're ever going to get your own convictions is by reading this a lot, daily at that. So the faith which you have, have is your own conviction before God. Know that God expects you to follow whatever convictions you hold fast to. This is why God wholly expects each man and you could apply this to women as well, but the emphasis has been on men. God wholly expects each man to be his own man. Be your own man. I used to say this to my kids all the time in a variety of ways. Don't ever let anybody else dictate to you what you're supposed to be. And don't let anybody else's opinion of you matter. Other than you saying I trust this person enough to actually say, I'm going to think about that. Don't be dismissive like some people are. But as I've taught in the past, the the other extreme is what others think of you is none of your business. You need to be your own man before God because you're going to be standing before him alone. So manning up, God expects you to be your own man in the sense that He has called you uniquely to live a life that only you can live. I don't know what, um, what's going through your life right now. I'm sure at this time of uh, the year, probably a lot of things, probably chaos even, I don't know. Probably stress, who knows. But I know that God expects you to be your own man in the sense that He has called you uniquely to a life that only you can live. And some of you are saying, oh man, but I was like, I messed up so bad, I don't know if this, you know, no. He knew that from eternity past. You cannot change yesterday. So live your life now, whatever that means, with all the scar tissue and the baggage. And don't let anybody else tear you down. So men, we often find ourselves, to extend this even further, being your own man, 
Um, I don't have your responsibilities, do I? I have this responsibility, I have responsibilities, other responsibilities like those in my family, of course, my home. But I don't have your responsibilities. You have your own responsibilities. But being your own man is important because we often find ourselves fighting for others. For others, this is the kicker, we fight for others while we are taking smacks in the face from them. So we fight our tails off for other people and they <coughs> despise us. Not always, but often. Like Paul would say, am I to be loved less? I love you more. But you seem to be loving me less all, all the more. Yeah. The perfect example for me as a father has been with my children, obviously. And believe it or not, I know one of them's out of the house, but to this day I am fighting tooth and nail for both of my kids and now even for my beloved daughter-in-law. I don't mind. I, I relish the opportunity. Why? To reveal God's grace. Because I know when I man up and fight a fight that maybe they don't even see and maybe they're the ones that are actually, you know, bumping heads with me. I know that when I'm acting in integrity, it's a good thing, and God will deliver me through it. And eventually, eventually the wisdom transpires into them, and they figure it out. So I can say this unequivocally, that all of them have resented me for it at some point. Why are you laughing at me? Case in point. Maybe even now, as I share this with you, I don't know. The same goes for my children here, and I don't mean that condescendingly at all. I'm using the analogy that Paul used, that as sort of a spiritual father over this congregation of believers, the vast majority of the time, especially during the tough lessons, I am fighting, and you resent me for it even though I do it out of pure love for Christ, for your benefit. That's the funniest thing, isn't it? Yeah, funny for you. <laughs> it's, and I was thinking about that whole dynamic, you know, children, fathers, um, maybe even children, parents, you could extend it. For some reason, children are famous for accepting that Christ is fighting for them but somehow as true under-shepherds, and you're looking at one of them, aren't to be trusted. It's an, it's an interesting dynamic that guys like me have to live with. And just as a side note, and I mean this with every fiber of my being, and I don't think I'm speaking to anyone here this evening, if you've been here for any length of time and you still don't trust my heart, then you really ought to consider leaving and submitting to someone that you can trust. I mean, I'm telling you. Do yourself a favor. Go find somebody that you can trust, that you can. Because if you don't trust me, you'll never submit to me. And you'll suffer. And I don't want that for you because that's what true love looks like. I don't want you to suffer. It's not important that you're my sheep. You're not mine anyway, strictly speaking. It's important that you align to the Lord. 
If you don't trust me, find somebody you can trust. All I can say is that God sees my heart and so do I. And I'm telling you that I'm fighting for you. Because you know what? That's what, and I hate to use this term, it sounds kind of pompous, but that's what real men do. We're not afraid to fight this way. We're not afraid of a good fight even. Sometimes if we're in a mood, we're looking for one. I'm just saying. (laughs) That's all Paul wrote about when he was writing to his young protege, Timothy. Go to uh, 1 Timothy 6.12. 1 Timothy 6.12. Darn it, if I'm not fighting my own voice at this point. Whatever. <laughs> if it's not my voice, it's something else. First Timothy 6.12 Fight the good fight of faith. This is he's writing to his young protege, right? up-and-coming pastor, a true man of God. He's training him up. Fight the good fight of faith. Don't take that lightly. There's a reason why he's using strong language there. Because Paul, of all people, knew that it was a fight, a daily fight, just to do this job. And if you're a leader in any realm, especially in the family, you have to fight. I mean, every single day, it's a fight. So fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called And you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In other words, that's his way of saying, my friend, this is all about the gospel. Why would you fight? Why why fight this fight? Why get up every morning battered and bruised and say, put me back in the ring, coach. Put me back out on the front line. I'm still alive. I'm still here. I'm ready. I'm willing. I am what I am by the grace of God. Why would anybody do that if the promises they cling to are vapid, have no substance, if they didn't have a living hope, as Peter would describe it? Why would anybody do that? They wouldn't. They would do it for a time, like a lot of emotional people do, who call themselves Christians, and then when the times get tough, bye-bye. See you later. Didn't sign up for this. I wanted the wardrobe, I wanted the ribbons, I wanted the echelons, but I didn't want to fight the fight. It was always about me. And eventually those people are weeded out, especially behind pulpits. Verse 13, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate that you keep the commandment without stain or Reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited, or fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, 
who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. That echoes all the way back to Job, doesn't it? All the way back to Job. I know my Redeemer lives. I'm going to fix my hope on Him. Verse 18, with all of that motivating you, instruct them to do good. Fight the good fight. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you avoiding worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called, quote, knowledge, which some have professed and thus gone astray from the faith. Grace be with you. I look at that entire closing passage as don't just avoid the white noise. There's always somebody who thinks they've got a better way when Jesus Christ said, I'm the only way. There's always someone who's trying to complicate things for the sake of stratification, even within the body of Christ. There's always someone who says, I know this is hard to believe, it's 2017, and I found a new doctrine. I know there's already somebody doing that or creating new words or anything like that. They can keep it. I'll take Job's viewpoint. I'll take Paul's viewpoint. I'll take any of the apostles' viewpoint, which is very simple. This is about the gospel. Amen? It really is. Honestly, this is what it's about. It's not easy being the agent holding the scalpel, I can tell you that. The one commissioned to cut your soul open and say, you see right there, that's cancer in your life. It's not easy being up here doing those kinds of things. The problem is that surgery is painful. So, this may go in your own life when you have to point something out in your own life, in your own home maybe. On the topic of manning up, it's not popular to lead people where they do not want to go. That's verbatim from Tuesday. It's not popular to lead people where they do not want to go. I think of like a stubborn mule. This is where ass really makes sense. A stubborn ass. You can pull on it all you want, but they just don't want to go. And so we have encouragement from Scripture. We saw this with Jeremiah, where the Lord said, Now gird up your loins and arise, Jeremiah, and speak to them all which I command you. Do not be dismayed before them, or I will dismay you before them. It is not popular, and the Lord knows this. He said, So what? So what? When did, it, where, where did I ever tell you you're going to be winning Mr. Popularity? contests. In fact, I told you just the opposite. And now we have the New Testament and we have the Lord who said, listen, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. If the world loves you, there's a problem. Jeremiah, like all of us, had to be encouraged to stand his ground while delivering unpopular news to his brethren. But just know that any man or woman of integrity wants to be treated the same way. In other words, you can't just be <clears throat> the authoritarian, the person uh, who always carries a whip or a rod or 
some corrective measure that's lopsided. You also have to have enough integrity to say, when it's your time, bring it on. I just want to be healed. I just want to do the Lord's will. And whatever that means, any man or woman worth their salt thinks that way. Go to Luke 631. And we have to remember that when we approach others even. You may not be popular, but you know what? Turn the tables around. You don't want somebody concerned with being popular with you, especially if they have something that can deliver you. You want them to be honest, right? So there you go. Everybody looks at Luke 6.31 and thinks about the, you know, the schoolyard example. Oh, be nice. You want to be treated nice, right? Oh, well, be nice. All sugar and candy, right, and spice. Well, sometimes it's the opposite. If you have real integrity towards truth, you want the lumps too. You want both. You just want to know the truth. Whatever gets you from point A to point B, I'll take the lumps, I'll take the sugar, whatever. I'll take the sugar as lumps. Tuesdays at the Improv 7. Luke 6.31, Luke 6, treat others the same way you want them to treat you. That goes both directions. Do you want somebody to tell you the truth? Whether it's sweet or sour? Who cares? If it gets you from point A to point B, do it. Bring it on. And this applies to all people, even your enemies. Look at verse 32. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Big deal. For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. And do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Pardon, and you will be pardoned. Give, and it will be given to you. They will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. For by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. Real men, women, same. Real men lay down their lives for others. That's what Jesus did, right? I was thinking about this in this context as well. Manning up is situational. Situational. In the same way that we trust God to understand our circumstances and be merciful, we ought to engender that same trust in those under our charge. Let me say that again. In the same way that we trust God to understand our circumstances and be merciful. Do you trust God to be merciful? Yeah. Well, if God, that same God has delegated authority in your life, and we all have it somewhere in our lives down the line, especially you men, 
then we ought to engender that same trust in those because we're representing our Lord, right? So part of our duty is to engender that trust in those under our charge. Otherwise, we leave an opening, cracks, if you would, in the foundation, opportunities for the devil. And what does the Bible say? Don't give the devil an opportunity to exploit you or your weakened family because they don't trust you as a leader. It's really, really important that those under your charge at least trust you. I think that's half the problem with marriages nowadays. The men are so defunct, it's really hard for the woman to respond. It's, I, don't even, I don't even trust you. It's really hard for me to respect your calls, so I'm going like, to buck you. You've got to give me something here. You've got to engender trust. I want to trust you, really. I'm built to trust you. It's what I desire most. Of course, your flesh is saying something awful, but the new creature is, that's what, that's what the new creature thirsts for. It loves the idea of authority orientation. But you've got to be a good authority. Matthew 5, 7, up here on the board. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. So show mercy. The same way the Lord shows mercy in your life, men, show mercy to those in your life. Of course, the culmination of all of this, as is the case with all holy doctrines found in the Word of God, is very simple. Love. How do you, how, how do you show mercy? love if you're unmerciful you're unloving if you're unloving you're not going to be merciful love is the key without love is the basis for all things all things become wood hay and straw so as Paul summarizes go to Romans 13 8 Romans 13 8 Paul summarizes it here. Romans 13, 8. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. You want to know what it means to be a man? You want to know what it means to lead? You have to love. Love is literally the motivating factor behind every nook and cranny of your leadership. Everything has to be done in love. Everything. That's why you should never discipline another person unless you're contained in love. If you've lost your self-control for a moment, then walk away for a time and come back. That's what love does. It's very protective. It's nurturing. It's open to correction even. It's open to give correction. It has integrity. It has virtue. That's what love is. It doesn't focus. It doesn't get jealous. It doesn't focus on people's you know, wrongs they've done five years ago or even five minutes ago necessarily. 
It's not interested in division. It's interested in unity. Think about that. God is unity and God is love. They are intrinsically the same ball of wax. So if you love, what you're really trying to do, especially as a husband and a father, is to bring unity in the family. Everything in this world is meant to divide the family. Everything. I am convinced of it. Anything from the God of this world, literally, families everywhere, especially Christian families, have targets all over them, bullseyes all over them. And unfortunately, because nobody's reading their Bibles or even submitting to viable pastors, rather the ones that tickle their ears or something, there's cracks everywhere in the foundation. And they wonder why the house just keeps falling apart. And then they go make another mistake. They start another family with another person. And that one falls apart. And then they make another mistake. And they start another one. And that one falls apart. And God hates all of it. And Satan's licking his chops. One last perspective before we regain our footing in our primary course of study, what is good and who gets to define it, on the idea of manning up, the most important leadership role you have is spiritual. Just get that right. Just get that part right, men. If you have a family, if you have a, a, a wife and, and kids, get that part right. Make sure that Christ is the center in your home. And don't be apologizing to anyone's flesh. And don't apologize for enforcing this as a reality in your home. The most important leadership role you have is a spiritual one. Anybody can... Uh, you know, go to work, make money, and send their kid to school and make sure they get through 12 years of school and say bye bye Even an unbeliever can do that. Where it becomes challenging is for you to lead your family spiritually. And say, as for me in this house, we serve the Lord. And literally impose that on your family. Say, this, we're not going to live in harmony here. <laughs> we're not, this is not going to happen in my house. You're not going to be working for the enemy. I'm not going to allow it in my house. So do whatever it takes to man up. That's what the Lord is saying here. Your primary role is as a spiritual leader. This means that your first priority in the home is Christ. Nothing should escape the criticism or encouragement of the light of truth. If things are going well, let your family know. I love you guys. This is awesome that we have Christ in our lives. Christ is our centerpiece. Tell them. Encourage them. If they're out of line, tell them they're out of line. So that's whack that's what Whitney would say that's junk that's garbage some are slower than others that's why I wait a little bit it takes a little time you can see it people's like 
Nothing should escape the criticism or the encouragement of the light of truth. John 1.9, there was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. Ah, oh, it's so beautiful. I read that. I'm just like, oh, man. John 1 is, man, John 1, huh? It's magnificent. You read it, I'm just like blown. I feel like crying right now. It's mind-blowing. I can't even contain it. It's like, oh, God, I read it. I'm like, oh, my word, this is ridiculous. Nobody else? Yeah? Whew. I can't believe it. That guy saved me. Getting back to our message title series, <clears throat> where we left off with um, a couple of Tuesdays ago, part 11. <coughs> if you recall, uh, here was one of the last topics the Spirit had given us to contemplate wisdom, on wisdom. Stick to the Word of God as the source of all wisdom and knowledge, for that is precisely what it is. Remember we had those lessons, um, that emphasis on the inerrancy of the Bible. Conversely, man's nature, or natural heart is infinitely evil. Jeremiah 17, verse 9, The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? In other words, know the origin. Know the place where you should start, where you should always go back to. Avoid the Chinese whispers. Go back to the source. Go back to the source. Check your sources. I guess if we were like uh, journalists, right? That's like rule number one, check your sources. The final word from the pulpit where we left off on wisdom was this. When we find what is truth, we find the definition for good. Go to Proverbs uh, 4, 5. Proverbs 4, verse 5. When we find what is truth, that is the Bible, when you're convinced that the Bible is the word of God, and believe it or not, there are, I am convinced of this, there are whole denominations, the major one in this area, and there are many, 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 many Christians who are not convinced that the Bible is actually the Word of God. That that's not the final word. That either a church or some other designee has come along. And that's what all false religions do, whether it's like a Joseph Smith or any of these people, um, the Jehovah's, Jehovah Witnesses, those guys. Someone's always trying to usurp the word. Someone's always trying to say, oh, no, 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 that was good then, but I got a new revelation, right? It's not much different than the, than the jackass who says, I got a brand new doctrine and it's 2017. It's the same thing. It's the same uh, hellish motivation. Someone trying to elevate themselves above the truth of the word. That's why you always got to check the teachers. I don't mean like hyper-check where you guys are like sending me emails all day. You know, you said the, and it says A in my Bible. <laughs> Why don't you smell? Proverbs 4, 5. What does it say? Acquire wisdom. You know why? Acquire understanding. Do not forget, nor turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her wisdom, and she will guard you. Love her, and she will watch over you. The beginning of wisdom, acquire can you just say that in verse 5? Acquire wisdom. That's the beginning of it. The wisest thing you can do is seek the truth. And that's, that's what the Bible is. It's the truth. 
And with all you're acquiring, get understanding. You want to understand this crazy life that we live in? Read your Bible. Honest to goodness. Read your Bible. Pray. Submit to whoever your pastor is. Submit to whatever authority is in your life because all authority is from God. Understand that authority is given for a reason that God ordained it and that when He ordains something, it's good. And anytime you try to slip out of said authority structure, it goes from being something good to bad. That's wisdom. The wisest of us know very well, and we'll show you, like, like remember in Jaws? Oh, yeah, look at this scar. That's when I was still stupid. Oh, yeah? And the, the older you get, they got like, you know, oh, yeah? And it's like, uh, what was that guy's name? Whipple? No, what was this guy's name? Anybody remember? You don't remember him? He pulled up his leg. Richard Dry Hooper. I said Whipple. I was close. I knew it was a P in there. Hooper, right? He pulls it. Oh, yeah, look at this. The older you get, the more sky. You say, every time I veered off course and I've chosen human wisdom over godly wisdom, I get another scar. So, been there, done that. But we don't listen, do we? There are probably younger individuals listening to my voice right now that are going, <laughs> and tomorrow, maybe even tonight, they'll do something stupid and they'll get a little scar. <laughs> Michael, they didn't follow you. You know what I'm saying, guys? <clears throat> Sorry. There was supposed to be a protocol there. I was supposed to do this. They were supposed to turn it down, not blow your eardrums out. <laughs> we'll get it. We'll get it. Right, guys? <laughs> the beginning of wisdom is acquire wisdom. And with all you require and get understanding. Again, the point of the board, when we find what is truth, then we find the definition for good. You want to find out what's good? That's the big question, right? The $20,000 question. What is good? Well, you got to have something or someone to trust. Well, that's what the Bible is. That's why everything we do here is based on the Bible. That's why our lessons are so chock full of Scripture. Even the blogs, they're just chock full. With scripture. Go to James 3.17. It's the other passage that we didn't look at in this point on the board. When we find what is truth, then we find the definition for good. So that's our direction set, if you would. That's our compass. We're looking for good. Anybody seen good? You know what I mean? You have a compass. True north. Go that way. James 3.17, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. I like that last part too, without hypocrisy. A hypocrite lives two lives. A hypocrite is double-minded. Right? A hypocrite says, hoorah, when they see truth in the Word of God, and then, as James would say, turns away and forgets what they look like and goes right back to the mire. 
that's not someone interested in being sanctified. That's a person playing a game. That's a person with very little wisdom. Wisdom says, stay on the narrow road, right? Stay on that road, stay on that path that God put you on when he saved you. And don't veer off to the right or the left because you're going to get scars. And you won't have peace. Look at the things that are here. But wisdom is from above. It's pure, peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering. You want stability in your life? Some of you are like, I can't remember the last time I had mental stability in my life. I'm like a raving lunatic. (laughs) Right? I'm serious. Why is that? Because you lack wisdom. And the very first part of wisdom is, guess what? Get it. And then you'll get understanding. And then you'll actually understand why you lack peace. You lack gentleness. You're unreasonable. You're empty of mercy and empty of good fruits. And you're all over the place. You're wavering. And you're also a hypocrite. Because if you're hearing my voice, you're here, right? Some are like, yeah, this is awesome. But then you'll go right back to your life. And nothing changes. And some one person texted me this week. They said, we're just a bunch of tramps. We're spiritual tramps. All we do is just cheat on our husband every chance we get. I love you, honey. As soon as he closes the door. <laughs> right? Jump in the car, you're out with the world. Frolicking with the world. You want wisdom? There you go. James said it. Very simple. You want the, Who doesn't want to have a, a pure faith? Who doesn't want to have peace in their life? Who doesn't want to be a gentle soul? Who doesn't want to be reasonable? Who doesn't want to be merciful? I hate when I'm not merciful. I, I, you know, after the fact, you're like, oh, dude, that was like the most unmerciful thing ever you could have possibly done. Of all the ten choices you could have made, you chose the least merciful one. <laughs> right? I hate that. And it's usually when I'm being a lunatic. Like something's already got me off kilter. I've lost my peace. I've lost my way. I'm not functioning in, in, in reasonable wisdom at all. And then something happens, and Satan's really good at exploiting those times when you're in that state of mind. And then you completely have no mercy. That's not good fruit at all. I guess that makes me a hypocrite. And it really does, in the strictest sense of the word, right? I say I believe these things. I say I believe in goodness. I say I believe in integrity. I say I believe in all these um, fruits of the Spirit. But then here I am over here, looking and doing nothing like it. I guess that makes me a hypocrite. I'm okay with that. At least I'm being honest good place to start. If I'm not being honest, if I'm not being humble, then what, the, what, do I, what chance do I have? I got no chance. Didn't we learn that with what's encouraging about the apostles? At least they were humble. If you got nothing else on a day, if you've had the worst day and some of you are like, yeah, that was today. Right? Everybody's like, that was today. If you had the worst day and you were the big jackass, the, very, the least you could do is be humble about it. 
Maybe you have to make an apology. Maybe that's where you start. Especially as a husband or a father. And that's hard. You know what? I think I'm going to end there. Because the next, the next slide is this. And I don't want to get into it. We only have less than four minutes. So I guess what I'll say to you in closing is, read James 3.17 again when you get home. Read Proverbs 4, 5 to 7 again when you get home. Not now, because everybody's in the moment, right? Everybody's like, you know, I'm filled with the Spirit, and I'm like, you know, lockstep, and after an hour, it's just like, I'm like, right? And then you, as soon as you walk home, right, the dog jumps up and scrapes your leg all the way down the side, and you flip out, and the dog bowl goes shooting off the wall, right? And there's water everywhere, and you kick the dog, and later on, you're going to feel like a real jerk for kicking the dog, Right? Do you know what I'm getting at, right? I don't do that. I don't go home and kick the dog all the time. I'm not saying I haven't kicked her out of the way, though. And every time I feel bad about it. That's God's creature. I shouldn't be kicking around my dog or any other creature, to be honest. I want peace. I don't want to be kicking anything around. So go home and read these things, because that's the truth. And that's what's good. And that's where you're going to find it in the Bible. Amen? Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for truth that sets us free. Thank you for not allowing us to sidestep it or escape it or step out of the light because we've been born again into the light. So here we are, Father, at your mercy but completely wrapped in your love. Thank you. We love you. We just ask your blessings as we take the things we've learned out to a lost and dying world, Father, that needs it so desperately. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.